Hello and welcome to Science at All, a podcast about everything science sponsored by the Yale School of Medicine. I'm your host, Daniel Barron, and in this episode, I'm speaking with Michael Lemonick, or as I call him, Mike. Mike is the chief opinion editor at Scientific American, and previously he was a senior writer at Time Magazine, during which period he wrote more than 50 cover stories on a wide range of science topics. 50 cover stories, you heard that right. Uh, he's also written cover stories for National Geographic, Scientific American, Discover Magazines, and is written for The New Yorker. Mike has also authored seven books, the most recent of which he called The Perpetual Now, A Story of Amnesia, Memory, and Love, which was published in 2017 and which we discussed briefly in this podcast. I wanted to speak with Mike for somewhat personal reasons. Uh, he had been my editor for over four years at Scientific American, and I've really gotten to enjoy Mike and the way he thinks about the world, and, and in particular, the way he thinks about kind of silly things that I write that don't make sense. And uh, Mike has a very uh, no-nonsense way of helping me improve whatever I'm working on. And so I really wanted to sit down with him for this podcast. And he was very generous, allowing me to be actually the first episode that we recorded and so he kind of gave himself up to be a guinea pig here. Uh, but even though I sounded very nervous and indeed was very nervous at the beginning, uh, Mike was his typical cool and collected self and kind of centered me and really got the episodes off to a good start. So here we go, Mike Lemonick. So what I've come to understand is uh, you know, I'm a science journalist, as you said. I've written for, for Time magazine for most of my career, but now I'm with Scientific American, another generally popular magazine. And I've come to really understand that the whole model of journalism is not well-suited to talking about science. And the reason is that in science, when it works as it should, we're not talking about fraud or you know hype, things like that. But in science, the latest publication, the latest paper, the latest observation through a telescope uh, is the most tenuous, the most tentative. Uh, it's a you know it's a new idea that's out there, a new discovery. And in order for it to become part of the accepted scientific understanding, it has to be reviewed by other scientists. Other scientists have to try and reproduce it, uh, you know, because if you, you know, you see something up in the sky and nobody else can see it, you don't get to call it a discovery or you don't for long. And so, uh, so the way science um, works optimally is that, you know, somebody comes out with a paper saying, I have, you know, discovered this new enzyme that does such and such. I'm making this up because biology is not my specialty. Um, and if and uh, you know if it works as I think it does, it, we could have a new cure for so and so someday. Alzheimer's, you know, this is very promising. But if nobody else can reproduce it, or if it turns out that you made a mistake, uh, which is possible because scientists are human, six months later we may discover, or a year later we may discover, no, actually, not true after all. Mm. Um, reasonable, reasonable claim turns out not to be true. And that, and the newest thing, which is not you know necessarily based on a deep um, background of, of previous research, is most prone to that. So scientific scientific discoveries are claimed and legitimately um, put forward, and eventually they turn out not to really be true. One 
I'm sorry, I keep talking. Which one could say is the vast majority of science. The, mean, the, right, the vast majority of science. But over, over a long period, you build up this body of consistent knowledge that right. helps you understand something. The, the thing I, uh, and in, in health reporting, it's kind of the most acute because it makes a difference. So if I say, I've discovered the most distant quasar in the universe, and it turns out six months later, oh, no, that was actually a plane going overhead, and I was confused. And so what? And no one's really changed their diet, their right, routine right. as a result. But I remember in the 90s, um, there was an understanding that people who ate a lot of green leafy vegetables had lower incidence of, of certain kinds of cancer. Hmm. And the best guess that scientists had was there was a compound in these, in these vegetables called beta-carotene, right. which um, was most likely the protective agent. And so... People st and you know every story you read said you know more research is needed, but nobody listens to that. So, mm -hmm. um, so people started taking beta carotene supplements because who wants to get cancer? I'm pretty sure my parents started taking beta carotene. Yeah, everybody was doing it. Then there's the Atkins diet. Then there's right, you know, but what with the beta carotene, somebody finally did a really exhaustive study over a significant period of time um, with a large group of people. It was done in Finland, I think, mm -hmm. and. The ultimate conclusion was beta-carotene not only doesn't prevent cancer, but it actually um, raises the likelihood that you'll get certain kinds of cancer. It was not an illegitimate claim early on that it might be protective. Turned out to be wrong. But in the, you know, the intervening 10 years, people took a lot of beta-carotene. Um, and so, go ahead. Well, so, so I have a question about this then. So if I had been a journalist in that time period. You know, I'm seeing these reports come out about beta carotene, how it could be this great, like, health, have this great health benefit. Right. Um, if I was a journalist, that sounds interesting. I wouldn't say sensational, but useful, mm -hmm. something that would attract attention, mm -hmm. something that people might want to read, mm -hmm. and therefore I probably would have written about it. However, if I'd been a scientist at that time, I might have looked very carefully at the methods, you know, looked at the surrounding literature, you know, maybe even looked at molecular biology, you know, see if there's a reason that, you know, maybe better carotene has a particular structure or whatever that might be helpful in DNA. Or I, I don't know. I've never done this research. But so there would be a lot more uh, landscape discovery. So how would this fit into what we know of health generally and about nutritional supplements generally? And then I would have made my decision about whether I wanted to study beta-carotene or recommend beta-carotene in clinic or something. So is there a similar um, longitudinal, like horizontal analysis for a journalist who is trying to decide whether to report on beta-carotene? Uh, essentially, no, with, with uh, a caveat. So I, I was saying initially that the, the model of journalism and the model of science are, are very different. Mm. The, the point is that in journalism, traditionally, when you're writing about politics or, you know, world events or, you know, so, so uh, in contrast to science where the newest thing is often the least well-established, in politics, the latest thing is sort of erases everything that goes before it. So, mm. so if tomorrow... Uh, Trump says, I withdraw the candidacy of, of Kavanaugh uh, for the Supreme Court. 
That's it. We forget about him. Well, we don't. It's not that we forget about him, but everything that went before Hmm. is subsidiary to that. That's the most important thing you should know. This guy is not going to be on the Supreme Court. Last week, we didn't know. And... And so the, the most recent thing, or you know, Trump was elected, or the German finance minister declared they would no longer support the euro, this is the new state of affairs that everybody now has to deal with. Hmm. And it supersedes, who cares what the German foreign minister said six months ago, unless you're doing some you know, res- retrospective analysis. The reality today is that this new thing is the thing that we have to pay attention to. Hmm. So, so fitting science into a journalism model where the newest thing is the thing you're most likely to report on because it's the newest works sort of against the way science works. Yeah, and, careful, and so it misleads people. Right. So the careful validation over many years is what we're aiming for in science or in clinic. Right. And so an interesting parallel that I was thinking about, um, you know, related to this topic is the Framingham Heart Study. And so there's the city in Framingham, uh, uh, Massachusetts. Am I saying yeah, Massachusetts. Right? Framingham, Massachusetts. Yeah, yeah, Framingham, Massachusetts. Over decades, when they studied an entire city uh, following the death of FDR after World War II. So he died of malignant hypertension. And so an entire city steps up, and they have uh, phys- physical exams, like a bunch of data is gathered on them twice a year for, well, it's still ongoing, the entire city. And as a result of this kind of very slow, very methodical, nothing's exciting, you know, over decades, we now know stuff like blood pressure, uh, uh, cholesterol levels, and smoking are risk factors. And so that seems very different than the beta-carotene assertion. And so as a scientist or clinician, I think that the Framingham Heart Study is so essential to what we understand about heart disease today, but how to make that entertaining or interesting enough for journalism, uh, I don't know how to do that. Right. Well, every time the Framingham study comes out with a, a result, people do cover it. Uh, you know, it's, it's the latest news out of the Framingham heart study, and you are, um, you're more, you're safer reporting on that because it is, it is such a long um, duration study and, and looks at so many different people. Is the public is interested in something like that? The public is interested in a paper that was just published saying that we've we have definitively definitively um, uh, learned that hypertension, or we know now better than we ever did before that hypertension is a risk factor for for uh, heart disease. Public is very interested in that. They're not really interested in. Um, you know, hearing every week about, well, Framingham study is one week older. <laughs> Update and, number 2045. Right, right. But, but major results, yeah, they're absolutely interested. And in contrast to what I was talking about before, those results are, um, are actually do mean something because they are based on, on a very large and very long study. So is that valued? So if I'm imagining a weighting algorithm... Right. So imagine I want to produce uh, an essay or some piece of work that will engage the public as a journalist. Would the validity or the like quality of the study be weighted highly by the public? Like if I was able to write, like this is the longest standing, best funded, blah, 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 study that we have in cardiology, therefore X, you should be interested in, in X. Like would that be... 
more engaging for an audience? Um, it mm, to a small degree, probably. I see your your eyebrows moving. Yeah. So 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 I think it. I think. I think uh, an equally important factor, if not a more important factor, is how surprising or uh, a result is, um, or how uh, you you were alluding to this earlier. How people really want to live a long time and be very healthy with as little effort as possible. Hmm. So if uh, you know if somebody has been telling me you got to uh, go out and do vigorous exercise. 10 miles a day. 10 miles a day. Run 10 miles a day. Um, I think, well, yeah, it's a nice idea, but probably not going to happen. If Cost somebody, benefit analysis. Right. Yeah. And uh, with, a, with um, a failure to weigh things that will happen in the far future right. sufficiently. But I remember um, at one point 15, 20 years ago, somebody came out with a study saying, actually, we are now showing that if you just go gardening, um, you know, three days a week, that's just as good. That gets a lot of attention because it sounds easy. Or yeah. if you take a pill, it will prevent cancer. So easy. So that has more salience um, perhaps than the length of the study or the, you know, the number of participants. Yeah. You know, people are not, people are not as interested in, you know, nobody's going to write a story about the, um, the beta carotene pill saying, this was only a study of seven people. Don't pay any attention to what I've just told you. Why would you do that? Or um, is, is there a type of journalism? Like, could you call it a, why, I, I, maybe I'm answering my own question, defamatory journalism? <laughs> like, it seems like obviously that happens with political figures. But in terms of correcting, uh, almost like a uh, correction to the way something was previously published. Like, for example, I could imagine a uh, breaking article, beta carotene is not associated with immortality or something like that, as previously believed. And so that seems like a way of correcting the cycle if an error is made. Oh, sure. Uh, people don't take beta carotene anymore right? because that other study came out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, something that overturns. Uh, the wisdom that you thought was the conventional wisdom. Hmm. But that's another problem with with the reporting of medical and health news. Um, the public, I, 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 in fact, I can give you a, a perfect example. I'm sitting in the offices of Time Magazine at the big conference table, and the editor-in-chief looks at me, because I'm the science guy, and says, you know, here's something I, that's driving me crazy. Feels like every other week we're getting different health news than we, you know, so we used to say don't eat eggs. Now it's okay to eat eggs. We used to say don't eat butter, have margarine instead. No, now go back to butter. That's even better. Um, get, you know, run 10 miles a week or 10 miles a day. No, no, garden, gardening garden. is good enough. I want a story, a big story that says definitively how you should live your life to be healthy. Um, <laughs> and I, I said, well, you know, that the problem with that is it's only definitive as far as we know for now, and it could change. And that's why you keep getting different news, because we learn more. He said, well, I just, want, just, I just want to know, what's the answer? You know, he wanted the answer. And, and so I had to do a story that looked at our best understanding of all of these different factors, uh, risk factors for disease. Hmm. But I had to put in there, this could change. And, and it has changed. 
And then I, I did something that drove him crazy. At the end of the, of the story, I said, you know, the truth is that all of these things are, are you know, worth knowing about, but you could drive yourself crazy. Uh, and I said, the truth is that if everybody just did what your mother told you, don't smoke, get a little exercise, <laughs> eat your vegetables, the, the overall health of America would improve drastically. Hmm. without worrying about all this other stuff, this blood thing and that. He hated it. It's like, well, I don't want to do what your mother said. I want I want something definitive and authoritative. So, Did it run? It ran. Uh, it ran. Was that one I, of your cover? Yeah. Ah, well, so it made enough of an impact. I, I guess. I guess. Huh. Um, well, so so this is interesting then. So and one thing by itself is unlikely to change the course of someone's health. You know, you could argue that maybe smoking is so heavily associated with like lung cancer, but maybe something like that. But what I, the way I'm thinking is more in probabilistic terms. And so a conversation that we've had before is like, how do you get people to understand uncertainty? And so is there a way to get people to appreciate the benefits of doing a lot of good things as if they're all adding some positive probability to a larger distribution, kind of nudging them towards the healthier side of the, the curve? Is that essentially what you're arguing that piece or? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I guess that's true. I, I didn't think about it that way. But the, the problem is, the other problem is that with the way that people read, average people read scientific Articles or articles in the popular press about science, and you know we we put in caveats, we put in explanations, we say you talk, say this is how you should think about it, and my sense is that while people are actually reading the stories, they kind of they get it, and it's like oh yeah yeah I see I see what you mean, statistical whatever, Reasoning, yeah. um, but then. They finish the story and then go back to their regular lives. Hmm. A day later, do they remember any of this stuff? Have you made a permanent change in their understanding? I kind of think maybe not. Hmm. I think maybe not. And and because this is, you know, this is, for a scientist, this is this is really important. This is what we do. And for a journalist, we're telling you about this important stuff. But uh, But science, an understanding of how science works and what claims mean is just not something people have internalized. And it's the kind of thing that's very difficult, I think, to force them to internalize. Mm. Well, so in the way that you persuade an audience to read a piece, like you kind of lure them in with the arc of the story, with you know the writing itself, the style, maybe. Um, I wonder if that's a way of passively... Like teaching, like I have to. I have to believe that people who are more likely to read a story about the health benefits of, you know, what you should do to be healthy, are also more likely to do healthy things. Am I wrong? I don't know. I don't uh, know either. Yeah. I, I I think they are more likely to feel like they should be doing healthier things, hmm. but that doesn't mean they're more likely to do healthier things. Um, hmm. You know, it's a. You think about something like climate change. I think there are a lot of people out there who know that this is sort of a problem down the line, although right now I look around, things feel pretty normal. So it's yeah. hard to have a visceral sense of, of, 
of the climate changing. But yeah, I should probably you know drive a car with lower emissions, and I should you know recycle more. I should do all this stuff. Um, but when it comes to actually living their lives, it takes a lot more commitment than most people have the mental energy um, to uh, to invest. Hmm. And so I think you know I think there are a lot of people who are interested in in hearing about these things, but they don't really have a a place to store them in their minds and hmm. and uh, to change their behaviors in a significant way. Well, so in terms of changing someone's mind, um, I think that well, – well, let me ask you about your pieces that you've written about addiction. And so uh, there is this distinction between you know the medical model of addiction wherein addiction is a result of, of the brain, of some imbalance in neurotransmitters, of you know this lack of like – True choice is even the way I've heard some people put it right. from the medical model. Like someone who is addicted to a substance doesn't choose whether to use the substance in the same way someone who isn't addicted does. Right. Um, so that's that's a philosophy. That's a way of thinking about a problem. And so when you've written about it, you write very elegantly about um, what it is to feel that lack of choice. And then you tie that into research that shows, like there's brain imaging research showing differences in you know, brain function. And so it's almost as if passively what you're persuading of is the medical model, as opposed to the opposite view that you know, everyone chooses for themselves and every choice is a genuine choice option. Right. And so I'm curious if that is, is a deliberate shift, like in order to persuade of the medical model, or if that is just you know, something that you're very interested in and therefore kind of align with personally? Uh, so the way I go about reporting on anything in science, whether it's addiction or anything else, is I I go out and talk to scientists yeah. and, and, and I ask them, you know, what is, what is your take on this issue? What is your take on addiction? What, you know, uh, is it a disease? Is it a, you know, a, a form of mental illness? Um, you know what is it? What's going on in the brain? But but um, but is it is it you know what's cause? What's effect? Is it that you you're born with a brain that's uh, more susceptible? Set up for it, or you yeah. know just explain your understanding of it and what your evidence is for that understanding, and based on what they tell me, uh, and I talk to a lot of different people who have different ideas. I come away, you know, I use my brain to kind of evaluate what they're saying. And I sort of, I come to a conclusion, I, I end up feeling a certain way about something. Mm. So, um, and I'm not an expert, but I'm a reasonably intelligent person and I, you know, and I, I can listen to evidence. And I come away saying, it looks increasingly like, like this is a, a, a medical condition of some kind or, you know, a mental, mental disease. In fact, the, the National uh, Institute of um, Drug and Alcohol Abuse, is that it? NIDA. Yeah, right. NIDA. Um, the, the director uh, says frequently, you know, addiction is a brain disease. Right. And she really is flogging that idea. And... There seems to be pretty good evidence that that this is true, and so that's what I tell people. And right. and you know certainly the 
the um, idea that it's a moral failing has fallen out of favor with most clinicians as far as I know. No, definitely. In fact, I don't know any, at least not at Yale, any clinicians who would argue that. Um, yeah, I think it's very much uh, in the mainstream. And however, there are many people who don't think that way. Right. And so those are readers that I think you could educate right. in a very well, significant way or persuade, like maybe even passively by not stating it explicitly, this is the medical model for addiction. And then they would come away from that with this realization that, huh. So that's the, that is the crucial step where I'm not sure I agree. Hmm. Um, yes, I, I, I present what I understand to be the best evidence. And the best evidence is that there is something physically wrong with people's brains and whether it's uh, they're born with it or whether uh, it can be, you know, whether the substances you, you ingest and the circumstances under which you ingest them sensitizes your brain and makes, you know, changes it to be a diseased brain. Uh, maybe it's a little of both. But yeah, I, so, you, so I come to the conclusion it's a, it is uh, arguably a disease and treatments um, are most likely to come from neuroscience research and neuropharmacology. And, you know, we, as we understand better what's going wrong in the brain, we can try and, and correct it. So I, I make all that case, and it may be that people are reading saying, oh, this is kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. But again, a day later, do they fall back to their old thinking that, but, you know, but Uncle Charlie, he could stop if he wanted to. And, you know, he's, <laughs> what's the matter with him? It's very hard. I to, have an Uncle Charlie. Oh, well, I hope, I hope he's getting <laughs> he help. He could. He could stop. <laughs> um, so, so one of the things that if you ask a um, science reporter or any reporter, do you consider yourself, uh, your job to be an educational one? You're, are you educating people? And we say, no, no. I'm not educating people. We're, we're very uh, resistant to that. What I'm doing is informing people. The idea um, being, I guess, that we have no stake. We are agnostic about whether people absorb and, and, and adopt these ideas um, because that would, that would make us manipulators or something. I'm not sure what, that, hmm. what it is. But, but, but in fact... The way that we are clearly not educators is that in education, you present information and then you test the student's knowledge. Hmm. And if the student has not absorbed and retained the knowledge, at least long enough for the exam, that student fails. And we have no such, um, no, no such follow-up, no such measurements. We both prof practically and sort of professionally take no position on whether people remember anything we've written a week later. Well, I can imagine, I mean, this is a segue from a conversation we had earlier about climate control. I can imagine that there could exist this league of journalists who report on climate control that could measure their efficacy based on public opinion polls like Maybe question one would be, what is climate control? And then question two, what are we doing about it? You know, th that right. sort of thing. Right. So, so there are people, in fact, there are people at Yale uh, who um, do studies on that very question. What do people actually think about climate change? What do they know about it? 
Uh, you know, is, is their knowledge, how concerned are they? Uh, how much action do they take to try and counteract it? So there are people who do that, hmm. but they're mostly not journalists. Hmm. Journalists, our professional um, stance is we present the information. It's like the Fox News slogan, we report, you decide, which is bogus in the, the case of Fox News. <laughs> so <one> interesting. <laughs> but, 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 but that that's sort of a co-opting of the, the basic attitude of journalists. We hmm. present you the information as best we understand it. What you do with it, we we are not. We don't check on you. We don't. We wash our hands of it. We do the best job we can to give you accurate information. The rest is, you know, we're on to the next story. There are many assumptions about what it is to have a brain, what it is to put substances into your body. How does the brain and the physical world interact? Can I actually change my outcome? Or is it like doo-doo, chance, or whatever? So those are a lot of very complex, more philosophical, maybe even intuitive assumptions that your reader, in order to go on that journey of learning about addiction or learning about psychiatry, mental health, they would follow with you and agree with you. And so it's almost as if you developed this body of knowledge, this literacy for scientific reading as you go along. And so is there... Well, you you nodded right there. I'm curious what you were thinking. Uh, well, I, I don't I don't know if you're talking about cumulatively over several articles, um, or within an article itself. No, even maybe within a domain, right? So uh, science writers write about science, and then so say I wanted to go back and read all of Michael Emanick's pieces in Scientific American, right? So there's no question that after I'm done with that, I would have seen like a string of ideas over a long period of time that are connected with ideas of like causality. You would learn some statistics. I would learn some about physiology, astronomy, like how mathematics can teach us about the world. And those aren't assumptions that I think people have intuitively. Those are taught assumptions. And so I'm wondering how journalists try to persuade in that sense, not specifically of an issue, but more of a model of thinking. Well, again, we don't, we don't, unless we're writing editorials, we don't try to persuade. No persuade. We, we, try, we try to inform. And so in, um, in most articles I write, especially longer ones, I, I do have to lay out evidence. I do talk about how scientists think about evidence. I do talk about statistics. Uh, I do talk about, uh, we were talking earlier about my, my, one of my favorite quotes from the physicist Richard Feynman, who said in a, in a talk once, uh, the most important job a scientist has is not to fool himself. Um, and you, as a scientist, are the easiest person to fool because you care about your result. You think you're onto something. It's very easy to overlook some dumb mistake you made. And so I've brought that concept into many, many different stories about many different topics. And re try, you know, not because I want my readers to have it reinforced because I think it's a really important point that people don't understand about scientists and about sort of the the, the ethic of, or the, at least the the uh, aspirational ethic of science, and the um, and I don't do it. I don't say, oh, you know, I, I should mention this again because maybe people will, you know. If He's I been working it, on this theory for ten years. He can't stop now, <laughs> or something right. like that. Right? No, no, no. But I mean, I mean, just just that. It comes up so often in science when people do make mistakes that when it does, and I write about it, 
You know, I, I reinforce, I, I talk about that idea. Scientists are human. They make mistakes. They, they get too excited. You know, they, they overlook evidence. Only because it's such an important part of the scientific process, not because I want, I'm hoping that readers will, over the years, have it in, ingrained in their brains. It's important to this particular story. Hmm. But the things that are important to particular stories come up again and again in science. And so, you know, the idea that, well, you saw this effect, how do, how do you know it wasn't something else? Mm. Um, and good scientists have thought of that. And they said, well, here's how I, I convinced myself it wasn't something else. So, it, you know, so it's not a, a cumulative thing over my great works of, over the years. It's just something, it's a theme that is um, recurring mm. because it's recurring in science itself. That's just part of the, the writing process. Just part of the writing process because each mm. story, I cannot ever assume that people have read anything I've ever written before or will read anything I've ever, I ever write again. I have to give them what they need to understand this story in, in whatever complexity I have the space for. And, and that's it. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm worried about. And if they need context, well, this is what we used to think. Now here's this experiment that shows us it's different. That's really important, and I and I put that in. Um, if you know, if the if the process by which the scientists made the discovery is is important, I put that in. But it's all self-contained. It it doesn't um, it doesn't refer back to or forward toward anything else I do. Well, so how does that change then? Say you were to I don't know, we were talking about the Framingham Heart Study, right? So to understand the results of the 1995 Framingham Heart press release, you would have to understand the results of 1985's press release. And so that's kind of a longitudinal body of knowledge that you've built. Right. Um, I'm curious how you keep an audience entertained like that. Like, would they just come back for the next uh, uh, edition? Or it's always new in that self-contained way. It's always new in that self-contained way. And they probably don't remember that they read a story about this in 1985. They just sort of vaguely remember, oh, yeah, at some point they told me to stop eating butter and start eating margarine. They don't know where they read it or, or, you know, what study it was. Um, But if I'm writing about the Framingham Heart Study, I say, you know, this has been going on for however many years with this many people. And uh, it's produced many important results, and here's the latest one. I, I give them, it's, it's almost like, um, it's almost like something, I can't think of what, but, but it's, it's, sort of, it's sort of like having... Um, like a Cliff Notes version or... Yeah, yeah, it's like, it's, it's like um, I presume that, I, I, when I was writing this story about amnesia, I talked to some people in Toronto who were finding that smartphones are, can be really, really effective memory aids for people with, with dementia of various kinds. So, so, you know, if you're carrying the phone around with you, and it's pretty simple to operate, so you can remember that, uh, uh, you know, if you don't know where you are, you can maybe take a picture and it, say, and it tells you, oh, you are in such and such a place. Or if you're lost, Google Maps can tell you you're here. So it's like it's not your own memory. It's not your own um, um, information. It's an external thing that brings you up to speed for the moment while you need to be up to speed on some particular thing. It's like and the tattoos and memento. It's the tattoos yeah. and memento, exactly. And that's Feature what, arm. That's <laughs> what um, 
Um, that's what my stories are. I don't expect you to remember anything you've ever read about this before. So I give you a little, you know, external uh, rundown of where we stand, what we know, and how this changes it. So, so this is another distinction then between science and journalism, I think, because I'm, you know, I'm in the process of writing a, a manuscript right now. And so a large part of my introduction is just a summary of all of the research and I'm surveying it. One could even call it cherry picking. I'm cherry picking it to essentially frame why my results are interesting, why I did the analysis and like motivate the study. And so I would say it's a pretty biased summary of a very, very, very large literature. And I think every paper is like that yeah. where, you know, obviously you don't want to talk about some random fact and it's very directed. And then um, it's not self-contained. Like it assumes a large deal of knowledge that uh, the reader has to have in order to do it, in order to make sense of the paper. And so maybe that's one reason why uh, scientists have trouble uh, trans transitioning or writing for these self-contained uh, mementos. Right. But, but uh, you know, I make assumptions too about what the reader knowledge already is, not the specific knowledge of what's in this story. But, you know, if I say I'm writing about astronomy and I, I say we've discovered a new planet, I don't have to explain to them what a planet is. I sure, assume yeah. they know that. I assume they they sort of know that DNA is is the thing that... that um, uh, that we pass along that with characteristics about you know what we look like and uh, and there, so there so there are some basic assumptions mm. about people who are in the world and the things that they know and that's actually that's the problem for scientists they've kind of lost uh, because they are in a very specialized world most of the time they have in some sense lost touch in many cases with what the average person carries around as a kind of a general knowledge base yes. or maybe even what they care about. Certainly, uh, certainly, what they care about—that's that can be—that's too difficult to try and anticipate. I think, um, but so so I assume my readers know that there's this thing called climate change, and the world is going to get hotter, and it's because of you know pollution from from coal stacks. I don't have to. I don't give them a, a, you know the basics of climate change. I assume they they've heard enough about it, so they've retained that at least. Um, I assume they know that. Getting exercise is good for you. I, I assume, you know, I assume prior knowledge of a non-specialized kind, just sort of a general, what you might in the uh, in the world of memory research call um, um, semantic memory. You know, I know what the capital of France is. I don't probably don't have to tell people. Um, I they probably don't know what the capital of Mongolia is. Well, so so to get someone to engage in a piece assumes that, you know, they're they're interested in it or they have some baseline knowledge. Like if you're writing about, you know, new planets, you have to assume that someone's curious whether there's a new planet out there or a mirror to our, our planet Earth or something. And so I see a, a correlation with some forms of academic writing where... Or maybe this is different. I mean, let me let me explain my thought first. So, uh, mental health is a very complex problem, right? And so, uh, its resolution or the resolution of the problem, like to be able to diagnose and treat, has been in the works for a long time, right? And so, every 
you know, five or 10 years, you'll have this paper come out and academic journals saying it's right around the corner, right? Like whatever discovery, whatever things we're looking for is right around the corner. It's the golden age of psychiatry is about to uh, descend upon us. And so perhaps this is genuine, probably is genuine sentiment of whoever wrote it. But at the same time, you know, I think it's a form of marketing, uh, sort of stay tuned, we have more coming down the pipeline. And so uh, given, you know, this, the many papers and the millions of dollars that's been invested in uh, mental health research or just research generally, it makes sense that people would want to pitch that because that's their funding, that's their livelihood. And so that's the science side. And so science writing is covering all of this. And so I'm curious how a journalist approaches their topic of interest. Like, for example, if I'm right, if I, as a scientist, am writing a grant for whatever new research topic I'm thinking of, I'm going to be very excited about it because I'm about to devote a large part of my life to it. And so is the same thing present in journalism to where, like, for instance, as a science writer, you must like science and have hope for science. Otherwise, why would you... Um, uh, that is true of many science writers, not all. So there's a guy named Gary Taubes. Have you heard of him? Yeah. He is his. Um, he's been very successful as a harsh critic of science. So uh, he wrote a book about the, um, the this uh, Nobel Prize winner who uh, ran the particle lab in in Europe, the CERN particle physics lab, and. This was an expose. He, 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 this guy is a jerk. He's mean. He's nasty. He, <laughs> he's, you know, he's a bully. He's, uh, he didn't really make the discoveries. You know, it was his subordinates. So it was a takedown. So he doesn't love science as it's done. His next thing that I can remember um, was uh, a, a book about the cold fusion episode of the late 80s where some scientists made a claim that they'd found a way to do nuclear fusion and produce energy far more cheaply than anyone could have imagined and was going to revolutionize the world. Well, he did a deep analysis of, of the fraud and the, you know, the, the um, missteps along the way. Then he turned his attention to nutrition. And he developed the idea. So in the, again, in the 90s, there was a, a very strong uh, narrative that fat was the evil thing in our diets and that l super low-fat diets worked miracles. You know, you, you could reverse heart disease. You could, you, you know, everything would get better if you ate a low-fat diet relatively high in carbohydrates. He, for whatever reason, and I'm not sure how he got onto this, he became a zealot for the idea that this is exactly wrong, that, that carbohydrates and sugars are the cause of most of our illnesses. Uh, that uh, the Atkins diet, where you basically eat um, just carbs. No, no, the opposite. Oh, just so protein. No carbs, right? no all carbs. just protein. Yeah. Fat is great. You know, the more bacon you eat, the healthier you will be. Uh, and he he wrote you know a thousand page book ex expounding on these ideas. So there are people who who are get the most joy about taking mainstream ideas in science and. Uh, tearing them apart. And tearing them apart. Well, I, I, I think that's actually fairly scientific, right? So Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. To be able to take some work and ask very critical questions of it, 
Um, so the fellow is acting as a <laughs> somewhat of a scientist. I mean, he doesn't have like distributions and t-tests, z-scores, whatever. But right. The, the, but the difference is that uh, a journalist is taking information and synthesizing it into a story, a narrative. I'm going to tell you a story about you know how to eat healthy, and by necessity, you you look at the information, you kind of synthesize it, and you and you come to a conclusion about what seems to be the correct story and you write that story and and the same is true with takedowns so you you come to a conclusion and if you have a predilection a a, a, a delight in takedowns it's possible that you will ignore evidence that doesn't support your narrative and you know, favor the evidence that does. And is, is that what's called activist journalism? I heard that term on a podcast. No, no, not well, not particularly. I mean, you 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 come to it. So you were saying that that uh, as a science journalist, I presumably like science, like right? science, or have some. Well, that's already a, that's already a prejudice. That leads mm. me to be less. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to be prejudiced. <laughs> no, <you're>, uh, <laughs> but it's true. Okay. It's true. I mean, you know, I'm inclined to like science. And and because I'm really interested in all the extraordinary things we've discovered about the natural world, which are legitimate. You know, we actually have discovered planets around other stars. That's a good thing. Um, um, well, so do you find it's difficult? So, say as a science enthusiast, I, wow. When I said that, I, I had Neil deGrasse Tyson like picture pop up in my mind. Right. Science enthusiast, tie vest, whatever. Um, I wonder if it's more difficult to. Um, report on the falsification of studies. And so that's something scientists struggle with, right? So, for example, when things turn out not to be the way we expected or hoped that they would be, um, they tend to be swept under the carpet, not published, and not truly falsified in a public way anyway. And so I'm curious how that works, like, emotionally or cognitively for a journalist. Well, for me... That's a part of science that I really like as well. The fact that um, things that we, I mean, so, and this is actually a classic um, theme for science journalists. So, so um, you will not infrequently see a headline or something that says, everything you thought about X is wrong. Is crap. Is crap. <laughs> and here's you know we've now we now know it's it's bogus. No, that's no. We love stories like that um, because you know overturning the conventional wisdom is in some ways even more fun than just reporting on it. Hmm. Um, but but the the mindset that it's mostly a scam and they're really. You shouldn't believe anything they say. That I don't go that far, and I think some journalists—that's their mindset. Hmm. You know, I'm going to get the goods on these people because they're playing fast and loose with the truth. Hmm. Well, at the same time, I mean, perhaps there are people like that, but I find that there would be this—you um, have to have an understanding of the process, I guess. Like most of the analyses that we do aren't going to pan out because they're of samples, right? Not of the population at large, right? And so even though an analysis may be true in one subset of a larger population, that might not replicate. And that's why reproducibility is important. 
one of the reasons why there's a big problem now is that maybe our tools just aren't good enough. Right. But again, so 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 I'm I'm really interested in the uh, in the outcome of scientific research of the things we've learned that we didn't know before and that are really interesting or important or or whatever. Um, so that's part of it. But I'm also really interested in the process of science uh, as it's actually practiced and and interested in in time in ways where it goes wrong. Um, but but I don't. I don't think I have the mindset that says, because iconoclasts have been correct in the past, I will assume that an iconoclast is probably right and that they're trying to cover, you know, the, the mainstream is trying to cover it up. Well, yeah. So you still think critically of every... I try to, yeah, instance. I try to. Yeah. Um, but there are people who who flock to the, you know, to the um, the outsiders and say, well, you know, they laughed at Einstein and now they're laughing at... This guy who says he's from Mars. Well, <laughs> you do the math. Yeah, um, sure. And that's an extreme that I that doesn't appeal to me. Hmm. Thank you for coming to accept the uh, Pointer Fellowship Award. We hope you enjoyed that episode. Thanks again to Mike for making the trip to New Haven and for being on the podcast. You can find Mike on Twitter at M Lemonick. Again, that's at M Lemonick. You can also purchase Mike's most recent book, The Perpetual Now, A Story of Amnesia, Memory, and Love, wherever books are sold. Thanks to the Yale School of Medicine for sponsoring the podcast, to Adrian Bonnenberger for producing the podcast, and to Ryan McAvoy for sound editing. A uh, special thanks to you as well for listening and tuning in. Again, my name is Daniel Barron, and I've been your host, and I'll see you next time here on Science at All.